0: The following study is a Wednesday night lesson given by Pastor Brett Metter at athe Creek Christian Fellowship. Well, let's get to it. Isaiah, we're in chapter one still. It seems like we've been there for quite some time. So turn there with me, Isaiah chapter one. And um, it's been a while because, of course, Deb and I, we went on vacation uh, just um, and missed two Wednesdays, so that was a that was a big break. And then uh, and uh, and then we we kind of lingered there. Uh, so we've ca- covered chapter one through verses uh, one through eighteen, um, and then we're going to pick up in chapter one verse nineteen this evening. Now, just a reminder to get us kind of back in the Isaiah mode. Isaiah breaks down into uh 66 chapters and we've talked about how there are those who p- make a parallel between the 66 books of the bible uh with the 66 chapters of isaiah and you can do that and it's an interesting thing to do there's also an idea where isaiah is uh, divided in two distinct sections uh so much so that some even argue there are different isaiah's that wrote it and i don't agree with that deutero isaiah or trito isaiah theory. If you missed our study previously on that, we, we talked about why I believe there's only one Isaiah that was written at one time uh, and, you know, some of the scholarly people say, well, that's foolish. Uh, the first part of Isaiah is very different from the second part of Isaiah. And all I have to say about that is um, I'm not much of a writer. I wish I was better at writing. Um, but uh, I could write something tomorrow that will sound very different than something I've, I've written, you know, a year ago or something. And, um, and also, he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he can change his tone, tenor, verbiage, vocabulary, all he wants, you know. And it's still the Spirit speaking through this prophet, um, so we talked about that last time, but it's also the beginning of this book, and and chapter one is sort of this courtroom scene, and God is the judge, um, and um, God seems to also be the the plaintiff, uh, and it's a, and and the defendant is Jer- the Jews and Jerusalem, and um, and it's not going so well. <laughs> they've they've been worshiping idols and they've done all kind of wickedness, and we saw that in chapters uh, verse one. Through uh, seventeen, that they that even they're, they're so bad that they've been worshiping idols, and um, they're a sinful nation, laden with iniquity, Isaiah says. And then we saw how um, the Lord even said in verses ten through you know fifteen, man, your worship is an abomination to me. Your prayers aren't even worthwhile; they're they're a waste of time. Um, when you lift your hands before me, I'm going to hide my eyes from you. And why is that? It's because, um, you know, God doesn't just wink at sin or coexist with sin. Um, we're called to be a separate people and, uh, and uh, to be washed and cleansed. Now, we landed uh, several weeks ago on verse 18 of chapter 1, which is one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. "'Come now, let us reason together, though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be as white as snow, though they be red like crimson, they'll be white as wool.'" Uh, or they shall be as wool. Um, What a great and glorious truth. And we looked at that a couple Sundays ago, um, uh, how the Lord wants to reason with us. And you know, if God, you know, it it cracks me up that even says be reasonable because what's reasonable, if you ask me, is that God squish us like the bugs we are. (laughs) That's reasonable. We're sinful, laden with iniquity, just like the Jews in this chapter. And God would be in his right to judge us um, and um, and uh, and yet he says, come now, let us reason together. Even though your sins are red like crimson or scarlet, they'll be as white as snow. And we looked at that. We talked about scarlet, the word tolet, uh, which speaks of that worm that is such an amazing picture of our Savior, Jesus, who died and shed his blood for us. So that's just kind of a quick reminder of where we are in our study with Isaiah and what, what we've come to. And um, now it seems that verses 19 to the end of this chapter one, he's going to try to sort of um, reason with them and, and convince them to, uh, to turn from their wicked ways. And, um, and he even sort of gives them some hope uh, that, that I think is worth noting. So let's take a look. It's Isaiah chapter one, verse 19. It says, If you be willing and obedient you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Verse 21, How is the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment, righteousness lodged in it, but now murderers. Thy silver is become dross, thy wine mixed with water. Thy princes are rebellious and companions of thieves. Everyone loveth gifts and follows after rewards. They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the cause of the widow come to them. Now, this is the Lord again, indicting them for their sinful, idolatrous, evil, wicked ways. You know, there's so much that he says here. You know, he, he says you've, you've rebelled and the Lord's gonna destroy you if you continue in your rebellious attitude. Um, Verse 20 is is a fearful verse. Um, This is why we have a healthy fear of God. For it says in verse 20, If you refuse or rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. Uh, It reminds me of the mouth of the Lord. When he returns, he's going to have a sword coming out of his mouth that's going to devour. Like this imagery is very common in the Bible. Um, And uh, I want you to remember the link to that end times scenario when Christ returns and the edge of the sword is going to devour. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But what does he claim uh, of Israel and the Jews? In verse 21, he says that they're a harlot. He says how the faithful city, Jerusalem, has become a harlot. If you recall in our studies, we've seen where God views the Jews as the wife of God. And we see that pictured all throughout the Bible, uh, but probably no greater uh, of a picture than in uh, the book of Hosea, where there um, Hosea marries Gomer, the prostitute. And, you know, they're, they're married and she commits prostitution again and over and over again, she's unfaithful to him. And that's this picture to the Jews to see how they were unfaithful to God. And this is what he's saying. You're, he compares it to sort of the Jews being a harlot uh, to the Lord. That's some strong language that the Lord's using there. Um, and uh, he says it's full of, uh, you know, uh, murderers instead of righteousness and judgment. He talks about in verse uh, 22, thy silver has become dross. You know, instead of being pure, it's, it's like uh, silver that's contaminated. You know, the silver is refined by fire as is gold. And when you refine silver and gold in the refiner's fire, the dross uh, comes up and you can scoop it out and it purifies. But this silver is not pure. It's it's uh, laden with, with dross. Thy wine is mixed with water. Watered down, these people had become. They used to be rich and blessed, pure and righteous. Now they're harlots, watered down, full of dross. Like this is some horrible language. And then the princes are rebellious there in verse 23. Companions of thieves. So there was dishonesty. And, uh, you know, people ripping each other off. And everybody was materialistic. Where it says they loved gifts and followed after rewards. They were bribing one another. Um, And then the, the last indictment is intriguing. Where it says they don't care about the fatherless, the orphan. And neither do they care about the cause of the widow. Uh, and they just totally blow them off. Interesting, because, you know, uh, in uh, the Scriptures, there's, that's, that's sort of a litmus test of any given culture, is what do you do with your widows and your orphans? You know, in James chapter 1, verse 27, it says, "...pure religion and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world." Um, that's a, a gauge of what pure and undefiled religion is. You know, uh, people that are caring for the widow, for the fatherless. Um, the evil people take advantage of the widow and the fatherless, or could, could care less about them. Um, I love how Athey Creek. We have um, so many families that have adopted children, and uh, we have an adoption group that meets regularly, talking. Not right now, of course, but um, they meet regularly, uh, talking about you know how to. Uh, best serve the Lord by adoption and uh, and, and blessing little orphans and kids. Uh, it's such a cool ministry that we see a lot of our families taking up. We uh, as a church are able to support many of our widow, widows and, and take good care of them. And um, it, it is a different day. It's not like the widows indeed of you know Paul talking to Timothy, but um, but in some ways we do take care of our widows in that same way. With, um, and uh, many of those. Women in our church are, are, are a blessing to us, and we hope that we're a blessing to them. Um, but that's pure and undefiled religion. The Jews didn't have that going on during this time in Isaiah's uh, worldview of what's going on. Now, this raises an interesting question, especially in the days that we're living. You know, where it says, um, if you refuse to rebel, you shall be devoured with a sword, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. And I wanted to take this as an opportunity to ask: Is this is is this what's happening to the world today? You know, um, with the coronavirus, the COVID nineteen virus, and man, you know, um, just in Italy, more you know, more and more people are dying, you know, by the hundreds every day. We've seen that, and um, this disease uh, seems to be spreading, and everybody's trying to contain. But you know, it's always interesting to hear people rant and rave about what they think about what God is doing. Um, in something like this. And, and when, you know, it's, it's funny to me, here we are in Isaiah uh, in this really heavy, heavy section of Scripture um, during a really heavy, heavy time. I, in some ways, I wished we were in Philippians uh, during this coronavirus. But I wonder if maybe the Lord's got us here in, uh, in Isaiah to maybe address this. Is God judging us right now? Um, well, the answer is kind of yes and no, but, but I'm going to say mostly no. Well, Brett, how do you know? How do you know God's not judging us? Well, let's talk about this for a second. Um, this is something that the Bible does deal with a lot. Um, do you recall the story of Job? And Job and his friends were asking, well, what what must have Job done to deserve what he got? God's punishing him. And as it turns out, if you read the whole book of Job, they were totally wrong about that. God was not punishing Job. Um, it wasn't his wrath being poured out upon Job. Uh, that was a miscalculation on Job and his friends' part Um, And I hear pastors sometimes, I know Pat Robertson has done stuff like this over the years where God is judging, you know, the United States because of Hurricane Katrina or God is judging the world because of the coronavirus and because of our evil, wicked sins. Um, You have to be careful about that because you could be misrepresenting God and that's something I don't want to do. Um, Is the, the coronavirus a result of our sin? The answer is yes on that. Is God judging us for our sins right now? no uh, let me let me clarify all of humanity is in a fallen, sinful state when we sinned and i 'm going to go all the way back to Genesis when the Garden of Eden, you know the, the original sin there in the Garden of Eden when that happened, humanity became fallen we 've been in a fallen, sinful state from that day forward and if you 're wanting to blame Adam and Eve for dropping the ball on that, you know, be careful because i 'm pretty sure we would have dropped the ball just as bad, if not worse than Adam and Eve. Uh, And we have, we have, we've all sinned. We've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's no one righteous, not even one. When we entered into that sinful realm, the world became fallen. And that's where disease, that's where work and pain and childbirth, that's where thorns and death uh, became real. Um, You know, when when, uh, God said, the day of eat of this stuff is the day you're gonna die. Die in sin, ultimate sin and death. Uh, Satan said, if you eat this, you will not die. And and it's interesting, he was just playing with a little bit of words there because Adam and Eve didn't die right there as soon as they ate the the fruit. Satan almost seems to be right for a second until you realize the death God was talking about is the death we're experiencing right now with the coronavirus around the world. It's just the result of being a, a, a fallen, sinful people. But here's where I think we make some huge miscalculations and, and really dangerous misrepresentations of, of God is say the people of the world are being judged by God. So that, what that sort of implies is everybody that got the coronavirus is, did something really evil to deserve that. And the people that have died, hmm, wonder what they did. And, and really, that's the, the mistake that um, people make all the time. And Jesus had to deal with this this question all the time. I'm sort of reminded, in fact, why don't you grab your Bible and hold your finger in Isaiah chapter one and go with me to Luke chapter 13. Uh, Because in Luke chapter 13, um, uh, there were those um, that would say, you know, certain sins are are the reasons why bad things happen to people because they must've sinned. And there was this misnomer. Oh, they must've done something really wrong to deserve this. And Jesus is correcting a wrong worldview. Um, and that is, uh, here in Luke chapter 13, Jesus refers to kind of two events. And it's interesting because we don't know too much about these two events. We just know people died in these events. But in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5, we read of those two events. It says in Luke 13, 1, There were present at that season some, some that told him of the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Um, so, you know, there was a uh, Pontius Pilate and the Romans slaughtered some Galileans. And Jesus answered and said to them, suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? He's saying, do you think the reason that that happened to them is because they were sinners above other people in Galilee? Um, and he goes on and says, I tell you, No. But except you repent, you shall likewise perish. <laughs> Unless you you'd repent of your sin, you're going to die like everybody else. Look at verse 4. Or those 18 upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them. Think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But except you repent, you shall likewise perish. Um, Those that were killed by the Roman troops and those that died when the tower fell upon them, you know, the the Romans, you can say, well, the Romans slaughtered them. But the tower falling was sort of this arbitrary, man, what a coincidence. The tower fell right when those 18 people were walking underneath it and they got crushed. Um, um, But, you know, the point is those that were killed by the Romans, those that were crushed by the tower, they could have been upstanding citizens. Um, But in in that vertical dimension, you know, in their relationship to God, None of them were in- innocent. The same is true for us. Jesus is saying, instead of asking me why God, you know, why, why a good God allows this catastrophic stuff happening to these poor people, um, you should be asking why your own blood wasn't spilled by the Romans or why you weren't crushed. Why were you not crushed by the tower? Um, that's the better question. We all deserve death and punishment and hell. So it's a mistake to say, we believe God's wrath is being poured out by the coronavirus. Um, especially if we're saying on those that are getting it versus those that aren't. Some of you might say, well, Brett, I I wonder if it's God's wrath being poured out on on our world. Well, um, we we don't know for sure exactly if it is or isn't. Now, there is a time coming where we know God will pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And boy, I'm not gonna spend a ton of time on this tonight because in the last several months, I've done several teachings And we've asked the question, does the Lord destroy the righteous with the wicked? Um, We've asked that question over and over again. And and we talked about imputed righteousness. And we talked about, it's funny how this, you know, uh, coronavirus that started off, you know, don't meet in large groups. Then it was 250 or less. And then it was 100. Then it was, you know, 25. And then it was 10. It reminds me of Moses when he deliberated there with with God about the destruction of Sodom. Um, And... um, uh, uh, pardon me, Abraham, when he deliberated with God saying, you know, peradventure there be a few righteous. Will you destroy the righteous with the wicked? And he started with, you know, if there be a hundred righteous or 50 or 10, or and, he, and he went down that same thing. And the Lord said, I will not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And, um, and that's the thing. We have people who are declared righteous in this world who are Christian people who are getting the coronavirus, no doubt. Um, Is God destroying them uh, because of their sin? I I don't think so. I don't believe so. The Lord doesn't destroy the righteous with the wicked. But there will come a time when God will take out his church. I believe that's the rapture of the church. And one of the things, if you want to ask questions about the end time prophecies as it relates to disease, um, I'll talk about that in our question answer session. And maybe do a prophecy update here in the next week or two. I think we've got a lot to talk about if we want to there. So I'll, I'll touch on this more. But be careful about... Making this all about God's wrath being poured out upon the world. Um, It's like I mentioned on Sunday. You know, people ask me, "Brett, is this the end?" And the answer is no. If you're asking if it's the end, it's not the end. Um, We'll know. (laughs) We'll know when it's the end. And I believe also when God's wrath finally is poured out, and it's a time period the Bible calls the Day of the Lord. When the Day of the Lord kicks into gear. I think we'll know when God's final judgment and wrath will be being poured out on a Christ-rejecting, sinful world. To ascribe the coronavirus to uh, God's wrath being poured out upon the world might just be the same mistake Job's friends made and the same mistake that the people that were thinking about the Tower of Siloam and the Romans killing those people that Jesus had to correct their perspective, just be careful with that one. Um, And I think we as Christians, instead of being, you know, God's pouring out his wrath, I think rather than that, talk about how to be saved. How to be saved from sin and death and how to have the hope of heaven. And man, we've got such a positive, glorious message. Why in the world would you try to make this into a doom and gloom message? Um, by the way, what leads men to repentance? Doom and gloom. Uh, Bible doesn't teach that. The book of Romans says it's the Lord's kindness or depending on what translation you have, it's the Lord's goodness that leads men and women to repentance. So during these times, be careful on the whole, you know, God's wrath and coronavirus is God's hand squishing people. Nope. I don't believe that's true. And you better be right about that if you're blaming God for something. Um, insurance companies call these things acts of God. It came out today in the news that scientists are saying this is not a man-made virus. There was some you know, uh, consternation about, was this a planted virus? Uh, was it uh, synthetic or made by man to destroy elderly people? Um, and there's, there's some uh, speculation that has been made there. But scientists today came out saying, nope, this was a natural phenomenon and a um, uh, natural occurring virus that's just very powerful. So um, we have to be careful. Don't blame God for things uh, unless you're absolutely sure and uh Jesus made a big point of that. So I hope that clears up some of the questions maybe you're getting about this. But here in Isaiah you say, "Well, Brett, the Lord says this to the Jews at this time." But you got to remember this is the time where the Jews were under the law. And God made it clear for the Jews for that time that if they were not keeping the law and breaking their covenant with the Lord and worshipping other gods and doing all this other stuff, then the Lord would judge them. And so this is part of God's plan and purpose for his people, the Jews. And, um, and this is a picture of what God will do in the future. In fact, in the next chapter, we're going to see how that kind of, uh, there's sort of a dual fulfillment of some of these prophecies. But let's continue. So um, the Lord says, man, unless you break off these sins, verses uh, you know, 19 through 23, you're in big trouble. The sword of the Lord's coming down. Well, then there's this verse 24. It says, therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Ah, I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies. Now there's a change of gears. First of all, we see three names of the Lord. And if you're interested, you can do a a word study of these. The Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel. Three titles of God right here. Um, All of which are uh, speaking of the Lord's might and power, but also his redemptive nature of wanting to save the Jews from this certain destruction. And, and then he goes on and says how that happens. He says in verse uh, 25, And I will turn my hand upon thee, and purely purge away thy dross. Remember the dross that was in their silver? I'll purge it away. And take away all thy tin, and I will restore thy judges at the first and thy counselors at the beginning. Afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her coverts with righteousness. Um, This will happen in the future. Uh, You know, the Jews never would see this really come to fruition in their time because of their rebellion against the Lord. But that's still coming uh, in the future where Zion, which is another name for the the city of Jerusalem, the place where the temple sits, uh, Zion will be redeemed and uh, uh, covered in righteousness and be called once again, the faithful city. When's that gonna happen? We know that's when Christ returns, the second coming of Christ. That's when uh, Zion, Jerusalem will be restored. He goes on in verse 28, and the destruction of the transgressors and of the sinners shall be together. And they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. For they shall be ashamed of the oaks, which ye have desired, and ye shall be confounded for the gardens that ye have chosen. Um, so he's, he's basically saying if you're continuing in sin together, you're going to be consumed by the Lord's wrath. What's wrong with liking oak trees, Pastor Brett? <laughs> Verse 29, For they shall be ashamed of the oaks which they've desired. The idea there is the groves. Uh, and that was up in the mountaintops. They'd have these tree areas um, with these um, places of worship of Astrath and of Baal and, and fertility gods and goddesses. And they'd practice all kinds of wickedness and idol worship in these groves. It wasn't as much about the tree. It's what it stood for that was evil. And he said, man, if you continue to practice your idolatry, you're going to be consumed by that. Verse 30, for you shall be as an oak whose leaf fadeth and as a garden that hath no water. You, you want oak trees and you want gardens? You're going to fade and die as oak trees and your gardens are going to die and have no water. Verse 31, and the strong shall be as tow. That's an old word that we don't use anymore that means kindling wood. <laughs> um, uh, it says you know, your strong will be like kindling wood and the maker of it as a spark. Um, that's going to light the kindling wood to consume it. And and uh, they shall both burn together and none shall quench them. You know, the idea of tinder or kindling wood where the light is going to, you know, the Lord's going to spark and it's going to light and be consumed. That's what's going to happen um, to this world um, that, that rejects Christ, that rejects God. Now in chapter two, we have Isaiah sort of, um, you know, um, starting to speak in, prophetic sort of ways. Um, And this is interesting because um, one of the things the Bible does is what we call a dual fulfillment, sometimes even a a third fulfillment of prophecy. It's almost like in in Isaiah, Daniel, other places, there are um, the prophets that speak a word and there's like a local um, immediate uh, application to that prophecy. But then there's also um, like the prophet, his gaze goes beyond the current situation and goes past into the future and even very end of all things. And that's what the Bible does over and over again. And this is where confusion often lies. And, and the preterist or those that uh, try to say, well, the, all the Bible prophecies fulfilled, nothing's in the future. They only see the first level of prophecy. They don't see past into the future. Um, For example, the the, the preterist would say that Matthew 24 is Jesus's description of what happened in AD 70 when uh, Jerusalem was sacked by Titus the general, uh, when the Romans conquered Jerusalem. I believe that that was in fact, partially a description of that. But if you read the account that Jesus says, it's not just a city and it's not just a country, there's a global implication of of Matthew 24 and a worldwide sort of uh, representation. AD 70 had nothing to do with the rest of the world. It only had to do with Jerusalem and Israel and the Jews. Um, So Matthew 24 is one of those where the gaze goes beyond, uh, you know, AD 70. Um, Daniel talks about Antiochus Epiphanes, this coming world leader that came during his time, um, you know, uh, or I should say after his time when the Medes and the Persians uh, and then the Greeks, and then after the Greeks, you know, the, the, um, the this guy named Antiochus Epiphanes came, who was sort of a picture of the Antichrist. And the, Daniel talks about him, how he would defile the temple in Jerusalem and set himself up to be worshiped in the temple. The, uh, and then Daniel, his gaze goes past Jerusalem, past, you know, the 170s BC, when Antiochus came into power. And he goes past into more of a global leader that's like Antiochus with the same spirit of Antiochus, an Antichrist kind of spirit. But it's this coming world leader. It's like his gaze goes past that into even further description of the end times when the Antichrist comes. I hope you understand what I'm saying. Isaiah does the same thing. There's a local fulfillment to what Isaiah is going to say in the next four chapters. Um, But there's also a, his gaze goes past his time period. So, just the local part, we need to remember what um, what's going on during the time of Isaiah here. Well, the Jews are in certain peril. They're already divided as a kingdom, the north and the south. Remember Judah and Jerusalem, the kingdom is divided. Isaiah is a prophet. But one of the things that's happening is there's this dude, if you recall in our study previous, um, a guy named Tiglath Palasser. Uh, and he's the guy, if you remember the Assyrian that came up from the north, who was really poised to bring all kinds of trouble to the Israelis. And the, eventually they'd be carried off into Syria and ultimately carried off in 586 BC to Babylon. And so some of the prophecies Isaiah is talking about are going to apply to those very things that I just mentioned. Others of them are going to go into that, but then his gaze will go past that into the very end of times, the day of the Lord, when Christ comes and rules and reigns. We'll, we'll try to see where those shifts Are made, and hopefully you'll see these dual fulfillments of these same prophecies. So let's take a look. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 1. It says, The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That's that divided kingdom I was telling you about. And it shall come to pass in the last days. Now that for us Bible prophecy people we say, wait a minute, last days, which one is it? June in Jerusalem back in tiglath pilesers day and, and Isaiah's time or the last days, the last days? And the answer is yes, both. Um, it'll come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he shall judge among the nations, and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. So here we see um, seven things that I'd like to draw out of this narrative that Isaiah gives us. And if you're already kind of seeing it, you see the the um, futuristic. Um, sort of quality of this, that it's way past Isaiah's time and even way past our time. We've never seen the Temple Mount become a place where the whole world comes to worship uh, in peace, where Christ is ruling and judging and and people have beat their swords into plowshares. We've not seen that come to happen, come to pass yet. It will. So this is that kind of a prophecy. He's talking to the Jews at that time that uh, that, that, but he's also talking to us, uh, future of our time as well. But let's break this down, seven things, jot them down. Number one, location, location. He says there in verse two, it'll come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains, the mountains. Interesting study, if you ever wanna do a fun study, study the mountains of the Bible because God loves to do stuff on the mountain, the mountain tops. You know, you might think of Mount Moriah where Abraham took Isaac um, and led him up the Mount Moriah to sacrifice him there on an altar. And the Lord provided a a lamb, a ram in the thicket for uh, a substitution of Isaac. So Isaac was not killed. Beautiful picture of Christ great, glorious thing. That same mountain, as it turns out, you know, thousands of years earlier, Abraham and Isaac go up that mountain that would ultimately, Moriah would become Mount Zion. Same mountain, same geographical location. Coincidence? No. Godwin's? Yes. Uh, That's probably one of the most important mountains. And it's also Mount Zion. It's called Mount Zion. Um, And, uh, and you could talk about, you know, Mount Sinai where the law came down. You could talk about Mount Carmel where Elijah slew the prophets of Baal there in First Kings chapter 18. Um, we could talk about, you know, Mount Hermon where Jesus was transfigured. We could talk about uh, Mount Calvary, which ultimately, by the way, the Mount Calvary is on Mount Zion, Mount Moriah, where Abraham was going to be sacrificed. All these things tie together perfectly. So um, it's interesting that it says here, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established on the top of the mountains. If you go to Jerusalem today, what's interesting is Mount Zion is not the highest mountain around. In fact, it's it's up at about a little over 3,000 feet above sea level. If you drive for like just 20, 30 minutes, you can go down to one of the lowest places on earth, uh, the Dead Sea. And you're at the lowest place. There's no other place lower than the Dead Sea. Uh, it's like um, 1,700 you know a feet below sea level, um, and then you drive up the hill, cross up over into the you know west bank into the Jerusalem, and you end up three thousand feet above sea level so it's Jerusalem is up in the mountains, but when you look at Jerusalem there's other mountains like um, the Mount of Olives goes higher than Mount Zion, where the temple Mount sat um, you say, well Brett shouldn't they have built the temple on the the highest mountain? Well, I believe that um this is you know, uh, part of what God is going to do, the mountains around Jerusalem, the Bible talks about. Um, I wonder if maybe in the millennial kingdom, somehow the Lord's going to make that mountain higher than all the other mountains. Uh, But until then, it sort of sits lower. Um, But there's some interesting prophecies and things about Jerusalem, the mountain, earthquakes we could talk about. I'm not going to dive into all that tonight. But um, the mountain of Mount Zion is perhaps the most important mountain in all the world because that's where ultimately Christ is gonna come and reign. And maybe even if it's not altitude or elevation, you see, that's the second thing. Number one, I talked about location, the mountain. Number two, let's look at elevation. It says here, in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills. The hills around Jerusalem, ultimately, um, the Mount Zion will be exalted above all those others, um, which is kind of interesting. Uh, elevation. Um, And that's something to think about, you know, above all the other mountains. And I I think whether that's altitudinally or if it's uh, just in glory, the mountain of Mount Zion is going to be more glorious than Everest or more glorious than Mount Hood. Um, It's going to be glorious because of who's going to reign on that mountain. So you got location, verse 2. You got elevation, verse 2. But then um, you also have the third notion in verse two, and that is um, cooperation. Notice that many people will go and, and say, come, let us go and, and, um, uh, up to the mountain of the Lord. In, in the end of verse two, it says, in the top of the mountains, you sh- uh, and shall be exalted by the hills, and all nations shall flow to it. There's coming a time where all the nations will flow to Jerusalem. By the way, that's sort of happening today. Um, it's it 's an amazing thing that people from all over the world go to Jerusalem to see you know the three major religions of the world um, uh, value Jerusalem and it is interesting how Islam in the last you know fifty years suddenly made Jerusalem important uh, it 's never once mentioned in the Quran it 's mentioned seven hundred plus times in the King james Bi- or, you know in the King James Bible um, the idea of Jerusalem, but you know it 's the third most holy site in Islam. Um, uh, you know, and and um, and of course, in Christianity, Jerusalem's important because of the Bible narrative, along with Jesus dying on the cross in uh, in um, Jerusalem. So, you know, there's people gathering from all over the world to uh, see Jerusalem, and they're doing that, you know, except for not not too many now because of coronavirus. Um, that's I've heard tourism is uh, virtually a standstill. Uh, In Israel, probably a great time to tour there right now if you could, but you can't. But eventually, all nations will flood into Jerusalem. Jerusalem is the epicenter. Man, I hope you understand that if you want to know Bible prophecy, you got to start there. You got to understand that Jerusalem is the epicenter of all Bible prophecy. Israel, the nation, is the nation to keep an eye on. It's the timepiece. It's the it's the litmus test. It's the gauge to know what's going on. Keep your eye on Israel. And uh, that's important. But it says here, that eventually, that all the nations will come. Cooperation, coming together to worship. That's going to be when Jesus' rules and reigns from Jerusalem. So you have cooperation. Then number four, you have instruction. It says uh, in the middle of verse 3, And he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. Boy, won't that be something when Jesus instructs the world how to live? Some of you might, boy, that'll be great. Guess what? We have that right now. We have the Bible. We have Jesus' instructions of what we're supposed to do. Praise the Lord, we're ahead of the game because we have Christ's instruction. But all of his word will be enforced and taught during that time when he rules and reigns. So you have instruction. Then you have correction there, number five. It's in verse four. He shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. Before all this can happen, he's going to judge and rebuke all the nations and the people, particularly those that are evil and contrary to the Lord. Um, And then, number six, you have transformation. They, verse four, middle part, shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war any more. now, I always like to bring this up because it's, it's a fascination to me. The United Nations has a wall outside of their building, the United Nations building, the UN, that um, has a quote of scripture. Isn't that wonderful that the United Nations is such a biblical entity, that they respect the Bible, and it makes me so happy inside? Not really, um, but but they they actually uh, do have this verse, But but you wanna know what's funny about this? is they only put on the wall outside of the UN building the second part of verse four. They don't quote the whole verse. They start in the middle of verse where it says, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. And they claim that as their verse. What What? what are they saying? They're saying the United Nations is gonna do that. They're gonna be the one to make people beat their swords into plowshares and their you know their spears into pruning hooks. It's all going to be peace and love and, you know, uh, that utopian Star Trek sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, agreement between all peoples and having peace because of the United Nations. Not going to happen. That's not going to happen. The UN is not the one that's going to do that. Why do we know that? Because they didn't quote the first part of verse four. They left it out. The first part says, and he, God, shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people then people are going to beat their swords. See, they're missing the main point. The main point is God's going to bring in everlasting peace and security. By the way, there's Christian people, and I believe they're good, well meaning Christians, who somehow think that they're the ones who are going to usher in the kingdom of God, that they're the ones who are going to uh, be the ones to make people live peacefully and ultimately prepare the way for the kingdom. And it's a dominion theology or kingdom now theology where we are going to usher in the kingdom. That's not going to happen. Bible says things are going to get a lot worse before they get better. And the the uh, dominion theology or the kingdom now says we have to make things really good, elect Christian officials and, you know, bring in this peaceful utopia and and pave the way so that the Lord can come with uh, uh, with us and rule and reign. That's that's not going to happen. The Bible says it's going to be worse. And um, ask Jesus, Matthew 24, what is the end of the world going to be like? And Jesus said wars, rumors of war, earthquakes in diverse places and pestilence. There's going to be disease uh, out of control. There's going to be plagues, even like biblical plagues are going to be seen in the last days, all of which we're seeing right now. Um, and so when I see the plagues and the disease and stuff happening, it makes me long for when Christ comes and sets everything right. And I'm excited about that. To me, these are signs of the times that we're living in. Um, and so that's back to the question of what's the Lord doing with the coronavirus? Maybe it's just one of those birth pangs that Jesus talked about in Matthew 24. It's like a woman with travail and labor. Same with 1 Thessalonians 5 where Paul talked about the last days. That um, maybe this is just a giant contraction before Christ comes. So I think we're going to have pain and contractions. Earthquakes... Wars, rumors of wars, it's going to get worse before it get better, gets better. Um, some of my Christian brothers think I'm a doom and gloomer for saying that. But I like to think of myself as a biblical literalist. I take the Bible for what it says. And the Bible says it's going to get worse before it gets better. And it says that over and over again. And it's shaken out that way. As it turns out, It'd be hard to uh, defend right now saying that, man, everything's getting so much better in this world. I have have pastor friends who are actually saying that. They're trying to say that things are getting better today. Um, But I I would have a hard time with a serious face trying to make that point. Um, But be that as it may, as Christians, rather than doom and gloom, we are excited about Christ's return, boom and zoom, the rapture of the church, and then Christ coming, ultimately uh, ruling and reigning and bringing in everlasting righteousness. You see, that's the thing. Uh, number one, location, the mountain of Israel. Number two, elevation. It's above all other mountains. Number three, cooperation. Ultimately, you, you, uh, the unity that we long for in the world is going to only take place when Christ is seated upon the throne. And then you have instruction, where the Jesus will teach us to walk in his paths, and his ways. Um, and then we have correction. He will judge the nations. And then transformation, beating our you know, swords into plowshares, our spears into pruning hooks. Um, And then one more, seven, invitation. Uh, After he does that, he invites us in verse five. Oh, house of Jacob, come ye, let us walk in the light of the Lord. What a great and glorious invitation that is, that we're asked to walk in the light. One of the things I love about Jesus is um, that he's the, the, the one who's the light of the world. We live in a dark time, Um, And I hope that when when you're going through these dark days and maybe feeling a little bit isolated in your house, locked up and a little depressed, man, turn on the light switch. Just worship Jesus Christ. Put on Jesus music in your house. Read Jesus scriptures in your Bible. Um, Light a candle in your house and remember that Jesus is the light of the world. You just remember that, man, we are not children of the darkness, but we're children of the day, children of the light. And we've been invited to walk in the light as he is in the light. And then we have fellowship one with another. Like, uh, what a glorious thing as Christians to be walkers in the light. I love that, verse 5. I've marked that verse as one of the great scriptures. Well, that's what's going to happen. Well, he continues in verse 6. Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob, because they have replenished from the east and are soothsayers like the Philistines and they please themselves in the children of strangers. Their land is also full of silver and gold, neither is there any end to their treasures. Their land is also full of horses, neither is there any end of chariots. Their land is also full of idols, and they worship the work of their own hands, that which their own fingers have made. And the mean man boweth down, and the great man humbleth himself, but therefore forgive them not." They bow down. The, the the strongest of men bow down before these um, idols that they made with their own fingers and their own hands. Um, you know, I'm reminded where the psalmist said, eyes have they, but they see not. Hands have they not, but they don't do anything. Noses have they, but don't, they don't smell anything. Um, they're deaf, dumb, and idle. And, and they're idols. And the Lord says, those that make them are like unto them. Um, that's, that's the condition of Israel during the time of Isaiah. They're idol worshipers. And uh, the Lord says, man, the the Lord's not going to forgive them if they don't repent from their idolatry. Um, And so that's the condition of the people during Isaiah's time, idolatry and what have you. They had possessions, they had treasures and gold, they were um, materialists, but they also were idolatry worshipers. So what do you do? Well, it says in verse 10, enter into the rock. And hide thee in the dust for fear of the Lord, for the glory of his majesty. Now, the question is here, which, is this a good thing or a bad thing to hide in the rock? Um, Because we're going to see there's going to be those that will hide in the dens and the caves of the rocks, and they're not good people. But there's other people that hide in the rock in the Bible, and they're the good people. Who are they? Well, let's read on and see who this is talking about. He's saying, enter into the rock or hide in the rock, hide in the dust for fear of the Lord, verse 10, and for the glory of his majesty. The lofty looks of a man of man shall be humbled, and the haughtiness of men shall be bowed down, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. One thing that the coronavirus, by the way, does um, is it's it's like a precursor and a reminder that you know we humans are not all that in control. Uh, uh, if there's one thing that's happened by this is we've been humbled. You know, with all of our technology and all of our science and medicine, you'd think we'd kind of be on this by now. You know, we've solved so many problems and, and we've, we think of ourselves as pretty amazing. And you'll hear people about the human spirit and the human ingenuity and we are the world and all this stuff. But right now uh, we're reminded we don't have a clue. And, and one little tiny microscopic bug makes us all stow away in our houses. Um, that's an amazing thing, how, how frail we as humans really are. And, and, and if you didn't believe in a merciful, compassionate God, it'd be horrifying. But because God is in control, we Christians say, hey, you know, no big deal. We trust the Lord. Um, We can put our trust in God and he loves us and he's got a plan for us. And even if we die, uh, we get to go to heaven to be with the Lord. You know, it's not a big deal for us. The world right now, they're being humbled because nobody's got the vaccine, you know, yet. And uh, this is just a little reminder that we're not as in control of things as we like to think we are. But the lofty man, the haughty man, is going to be bowed down before the Lord. Verse 11, last part of verse 11, the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. For verse 12, in the day of the Lord, that's that phrase you should be familiar with, Isaiah employs it often. That means when the Lord intervenes into humanity officially. The day of the Lord, uh, verse 12, the Lord of hosts shall be upon everyone that is proud and lofty and upon everyone that is lifted up, and he shall be brought low and upon all the cedars of Lebanon that are high and lifted up, and upon the oaks of Bashan, and upon all the high mountains, upon all the uh, hills that are lifted up, and upon every high tower, upon every fenced wall, and upon all the ships of Tarshish, and upon all the pleasant pictures, or the arts, all the loftiness of man, verse 17, shall be bowed down, and the haughtiness of men shall be made low, and the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day and the idols shall be utterly abolished." You know, um, again, this coronavirus, see, we see our frailty, and this is just a tiny little blip on the screen, I think, compared to when the day of the Lord kicks into gear. And um, again, if you're a Christian, should we be afraid? And should we get storing up and building bunkers um, and stowing away you know, treasures and getting our guns and ready to shoot anybody that wants our Cheerios? This is one of those things where I believe this is all going to come down in its fullest. We're not even going to be here. Um, the Bible says that um, he does not destroy the righteous with the wicked. And he's going to take his His righteous people, people who are imputed righteous, guaranteed righteousness, through the cross of Christ. We get to go home and be with the Lord. That's why it says, comfort one another with these words. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. For those who are alive and remain shall be caught up and taken up into the air to meet him in the air will be taken up out of here. Just like Lot was taken out of Sodom and Gomorrah before the fire and brimstone fell, he was saved. Just like Enoch was lifted up to heaven before the flood came down and destroyed the world, so too the Lord's gonna take his people up out, the church of Jesus Christ. That's called the rapture. Well, Brett, I think the rapture, the word rapture is not even in the Bible. That's what people like to say. That's just not really honest. The word rapture is there if you have a Latin translation, the Latin Vulgate, uh, of the Bible, and that's why people call it the Rapture. Um, but you could call it the Harpazo if you want. That's the Greek word, which means to be caught up. Uh, the English translation says to be caught up. Call it whatever you want—Rapture, Harpazo, caught up. But we're going to be caught up to be in the air with the Lord. First Thessalonians chapter four. Read it, know it. It's it's before Rapture, before wrath. That's what's going to that's what's going to happen. That's why you and I, as Christians, should not be given over to that spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. Because Christ loves us and he's going to take his church out before all this comes down. Well, this is what Isaiah is saying to his people because they're literally in idolatry. But you also sense that his gaze goes past the Jews of 586 BC and goes all the way into uh, future times, even our future. Well, let's finish up verse 19. It says, and they shall go into the holes of the rocks... And into the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to, to shake terribly the earth. Had a big earthquake uh, just just a few hours back in, in Utah, if you haven't watched the news, 5.7, I think, on the Richter scale. Big one. Um, but there's going to be a huge earthquake, the Bible says. It's, it's the big one that's coming during the tribulation period. And interesting... Um, language here in verse 19. And some of you Bible students recognize this. You're like, hey, this sounds familiar. They'll go into the holes of the rocks to the caves of the earth for fear of the Lord. When do we see that happening? Again, Isaiah's gaze is going way into the future, even past our future. And I'll, I'll read you where we see similar uh, language of the wrath of God. Revelation 6, verses 15 through 17 says this. It says, and the kings of the earth, the great men and the rich men and the chief captains. This is, by the way, during the tribulation period. After the rapture of the church were taken out, then the wrath of God's poured out. And it says, the kings of the earth, the great men, the rich men, the chief captains, the mighty men, every bondman, the slaves, and every free man hid themselves in dens in the rocks and mountains and said to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sitteth upon the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for great day of his wrath has come and who shall be able to stand? The answer? No one. That's coming. That day of his wrath is coming. And Isaiah is sort of giving us that foreshadowing and that, that mentioning of that. It's going to happen. The earth is going to... People are going to go to the rocks and the dens hiding. Sort of like the Taliban there in Afghanistan hiding in caves and dens as they have for these many years. You know, it's an it's a interesting thing that happens when the world goes wacko. Uh, people have to get away and we can kind of just get a small taste of that with this coronavirus thing. That's, that's like uh, nothing compared to what's going to happen. Well, verse 20, In that day a man shall cast his idols of silver and his idols of gold, which they made, each one for himself to worship, to the moles and to the bats. they <laughs> are gonna cast them away. Um, to go into the clefts of the rocks and the tops of the ragged rocks for fear of the Lord and for the glory of his majesty when he ariseth to shake terribly the earth. Cease ye from men. In other words, don't look to man on this one is the idea there. Cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils for wherein is, is he to be accounted of? Where's he gonna be when things come down? Don't put your trust in man, but he's not gonna be around when things really come down. That's what Isaiah is saying. Good word for us tonight wouldn 't you say um, that we don 't put our trust in horses and chariots, we put our trust in the Lord like the psalmist said, and tonight, as we uh, study Isaiah chapter one, I was hoping to get into chapter two and three, but we only got into chapter two tonight. but um, man, how appropriate it is uh, really, even though Isaiah is kind of doom and gloom, even the doom and gloom pastor uh, passages of scripture make me think of the glory of God and the hope that we have in heaven and the the fact that we're not numbered among, if you're a Christian, if you've accepted Christ, you're not numbered among these people who are wretched idol worshipers. You are set apart from them. You've been called out from them as a Christian. Your sins have been forgiven and you are beloved of God and you have the hope of heaven. So when you start thinking, is God judging the world? He's going to. Well, should we be afraid? Nope. Nope. We're not to be given over to that spirit of fear. First, Second uh, Timothy one seven, but of power and love and a sound mind. How can we do that? Well, First Thessalonians four and five. Comfort one another with these words that we're not appointed unto wrath. That's what it says. First Thessalonians chapter five. We're appointed to obtain salvation through Jesus Christ. So we really have nothing to fear, nothing to be afraid of. And I'm sure we be responsible. We try to help. We try to chip in when things go bad. Um, We don't just sit around and do nothing and charge up credit cards knowing that we're going to be raptured. That's false accusations, by the way, of people that don't believe in the rapture and people don't believe in uh, end times theology and all that. Um, They they say that we Christians are just sitting around that believe that and doing nothing. Actually, I've found that people that believe in the rapture of the church are oftentimes doing as much or more uh, to help people in dire times because we're not freaking out. Um, We're the ones who are trusting the Lord and looking forward to his return. Until then... We're busy about his work, busy about his kingdom, man. I love all the stories of things i 've been hearing you know from our church and people reaching out i got to talk with a guy from our church uh, he owns uh, he owns Oswego Grill here in west uh, Wilsonville and West and he, he said, brett we'd like to um, uh, make meals and, and uh, for for uh, you know elderly people and and if, and have athe creekers come and have your young people come and deliver pre made meals." Uh, uh, for people that really shouldn't be getting out, some of our elderly folks, and you know what a what a cool thing, you know, people just saying let's just let's just care for each other, and we've got um, you know people who are trying to help out with our elderly. I think that's the the biggest concern. I think with this coronavirus is how can we make sure that we're keeping our older folks, you know, able to stay at home and. Um, and uh if you 're those that are of that group and uh you 're in need, man, let us know if, if there's anything we can do to help you out um, as a church and we're we're hoping to be able to help as as many as we can you know so that's uh, but we 're glad young and old we 're glad you 've been with us tonight on this Wednesday night Bible study. I could go really long tonight there's no school tomorrow. Uh, we could just go on for hours, but I better not because um uh I think the human brain can only take so much. (laughs) Well, may the Lord bless you. And let's close with prayer. Lord, we thank you that your word is that light that brings the truth, Lord, and and, um, the hope that we have in you. Um, Lord, even as this uh, book of Isaiah gets heavier and heavier, we know that um, it eventually gets lighter and lighter and we get the hope of heaven to look forward to. So may you just bless your people tonight. I pray that the time in your word would bring them comfort and even a peace that would pass understanding. And we pray your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. To take advantage of our media ministry, we encourage you to visit us anytime at com, where we have all of Pastor Brett's Bible studies available as a free download.